By the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, we come upon a person by the name of Abraham. And from Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book, Genesis chapter 50, we now deal with not, not millennia, we just deal with years. So we, we, we've got tons of information packed in the first 11 chapters. And then by the time we get to chapter 12 to 50, now we're, we're, we're really narrowing in, focusing in on God's great plan for humanity. And it begins with Abraham and goes on to Isaac, Jacob, and by the end of the book, we're hearing about Jacob. Well, we're going to hear about Jacob next week and then, uh, and then Joseph the week after. But today, I want to look at what we call the patriarchs. And the patriarchs are really the very first they're the forefathers, they're the first people of our faith. Now, that might sound strange to you as Christians, because you think, well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the forefathers of the Jews, not of Christians. But you're going to see in a moment that, in fact, they are our patriarchs as well. So, let's, let's begin by looking at these people. And in order to get a really good context, the thing that we, you and I need to understand, first of all, is who God is. Now, the Old Testament makes an amazing claim. The Old Testament claims that the God of the Jews is, in fact, the God of the universe. And what you need to know is that every nation at that time had their very own God. So there was Baal and, and Isis and Moloch. Every nation had their own God. Well, the God of Israel, his name was Yahweh, meaning being or I am or always. So... What you need to see then is that every nation having their own God had their own agenda. And so if ever there was a war, it was actually the God's people who were fighting a religious war. So every war was in fact a religious war. So the God of uh, the people of Moloch would fight against the people of Yahweh and, and so on and so forth. We recognize that every people, every Every people group, every nation had its own God. Now, Israel makes an amazing claim. In fact, it sounds arrogant. It sounds conceited. It's actually, for some people, it's like, wow, I cannot believe you would even say that. You can imagine how angry they would be when they would hear Israel say, our God is the God above all gods. In other words, your God's are subject to our God. Now, this made people angry. And you know, if you read the Old Testament, there were always fights happening. There were always one people group another people, uh, against another people group, one God against another God. But they don't just say that our God is above all gods. They say our God is the one, the only one who actually truly exists. Your gods are all figments of your imagination. Now, that's not very diplomatic, is it? That's not a way to win friends and influence enemies. Our God's the only one exists. And if that's not enough, they go on to say, our God made and maintains the entire universe. And you see this in the writings of the prophets, the Psalms, 
We see it in Job. We see it as a constant theme through the scriptures. Our God is above your gods. In fact, your gods don't exist. Wow, what a claim. The God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, belonged to Israel. In fact, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that's actually, if you stop and think about it, that's quite an amazing claim. That the God of the whole earth, the God of the, of the heavens, the creator of the universe, chooses to identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now here's what you need to recognize, folks, is that God the creator of the entire universe, the creator of everything, has made a personal relationship with a very small group of people, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So before we go any further, and I'm hoping that some of you, the wheels are turning and you're beginning to recognize where I'm going with this, is that you recognize that God is a God of relationship. This is God's heartbeat. This is who God is. In fact, you've heard me say this before. God describes himself as a God of love. In fact, all of the commandments ever given by God. Remember the Ten Commandments that Charlton Heston got? Remember those? When he came down from, those, from the mountain with a, with, a, with a tablet to the Ten Commandments, those commandments were all about how to love each other, how to love God and how to love one another. That's who God is. Now, if you understand that God is a God of love, then you understand this. That if God is a God of love, he needs to have an object of his love. Because that's who he is. He chooses to be in relationship with us. And folks, this is really all explained in Genesis. You start, you start, if you actually start in Exodus, then you would have to come to the conclusion that, that God, the God of the universe, is actually just the God of, of Israel. But we start in Genesis, which tells us that the, that the creator of the heavens and the earth was the creator of everybody and is the God of everybody. But by Genesis chapter 12, God zeroes in on, on one person. He chooses for himself Abraham and his descendants. So the God of everybody now is choosing one person, Abraham. And I know some of you are sitting here today thinking, wow. Why does Abraham get that sort of distinction? Why would he be chosen above everybody else? It doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Well, you'll see why in just a moment. In fact, this, this is something that the philosophers and some theologians have had a real problem with. They call it the scandal of particularity. Why, why the Jews? Why should God deal with only the Jews? Why not, why not uh, a savior for one for the Chinese and you know, one for the Americans and one for the Canadians and one for the Jews and one for, one for the British? Why just one? Why one savior for the whole world? There's a couple of uh, philosophers who were, um, I would say, well, they, they would consider themselves poets. I would call it dog roll. Uh, William Norman Neuer came up with this little poem, just a few words. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Bit of rhyming in there. It sounds kind of like a poem. How odd of God to choose the Jews. Cecil Brown 
added this to that poem. He says, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God but spurn the Jews. Interesting. We recognize then that God has actually chosen a people. And you're going to see why in just a moment. Now remember, before I go any further, life is all about relationships. This is what this life is about. And we see this over and over again. When people are on their deathbed, what's the one thing on their mind? It's either, it's usually the relationship with God or the lack of relationship with God. I hope I'm ready. I hope I get in. I hope I'm before the pearly gates that, you know, I got enough good in me that God will say, okay, you're in. Some people have this idea, this notion that God's got sort of a cosmic scorecard that sort of tallies up your good deeds versus your bad deeds. And if you've got more good deeds than bad deeds, that somehow you're going to get into heaven. Yeah, a lot of people believe that. Or somehow that God's got the scales, you know, the scales of justice and that your bad deeds are weighted against your good. And if your good outweighs the bad, that you're going to get into heaven. People on their deathbed are concerned not about their relationship with God, but their relationship with one another, with their children, with their wife, their kids. How many people on their deathbed make what we call a, a deathbed confession? In that last moment, as they're about to face eternity, they say, God, I've sinned, I've fallen short, and I don't want to go to hell. And in that moment, they make their peace with God. How many people on their deathbed will call in their children or their wife or, or friends and, and confess, you know, I, I wronged you, I did wrong, and I want you to forgive me. I ask for your forgiveness. And they try to make things right. What we, what we recognize, folks, is in that moment when we're faced with eternity, faced with death, we get incredible clarity where we can see like we've never seen before. We can understand like we've never understood before. And we quickly recognize that life is about relationships. It's not about making money. It's not about your prestige, your fame. It's not about making a name for yourself. It's not about how much money you leave behind for your kids, although, Mom, I'm open to that. Uh, it's, it's not. It's not about that. It's about your relationships, because that's all that matters. And some people will actually go to their death never having made things right with their kids, never having made things right with their parents or their grandparents or their friends. And to me, I'm going to tell you this, it's the greatest tragedy on the face of this earth. So, life's about relationship. Why one Savior and why just to the Jews? Well, let me just begin by saying this. In our household, when I go shopping, I buy a bag of potatoes for the whole family. And what we do when we get home is either, well, it's not usually me, it's Gloria. Let's just face it, be honest. It's Gloria. She opens a bag of potatoes, she peels them, Sometimes I do it. Sometimes Sarah does it. Rarely will Jesse do it. <laughs> we mash those potatoes. We cook those potatoes up. We mash them. And guess what? We all share from the same pot. I said from the same pot. I didn't say pot. <laughs> when we buy toilet paper, we buy one pack. And we just spread it out through all the bathrooms in the house. We have one house. We all live in the same house. 
If I buy candy, I don't sort of like buy, here's a bag for you, here's a bag for you, here's a bag for you, and here's two bags for me. <laughs> um, we share. Now, I'm going to say this. It would probably be a lot of peace in the house if we all had our own house to live in and we all had our, our own stuff. But that's not how a family works. And remember now, we're talking about relationships. And the most important thing in your life are your relationships, your relationship to your wife, your husband, your kids, your mother, your father, etc., etc. And I'm going to tell you this. The most important thing in life is your relationship to God and to God's people. You see, it's about family. It's about relationships. So here's the thing. God wanted to build a family. And so he sent one Savior to the Jews. And he said to the Jews, here's Jesus, and I want you to share him. Share him with the rest of the family. That's how this works. Now, it would be easier, wouldn't it, if we, everybody had their own Savior? Could you imagine we all had our own personal Savior? We all had someone to die for our sins. There's movies that have come out like that, right? Everybody has their own robot that waits on them, serves them, and dies for their sin. This is the, this is the notion. This is the idea that we have. Why? Because here's, remember we talked in the first week about, about original sin? We talked about this selfishness in us. Our tendency is to want to be alone, to segregate ourselves, to be self-centered, to be selfish. But you see, God's not about selfishness and self-centeredness. He's about family. And suddenly, folks, you and I are confronted with the truth that God wants us to be in relationship to one another and in relationship to him. Now, here's something that's interesting, because a lot of people, again, don't understand this. You and I have come to church this morning, not because we're religious, I hope, but because we are here to commune with our Heavenly Father. We're here to worship our Heavenly Father. We, listen, we are in relationship with Him. God wanted to build a family, and so He sent one Savior to the Jewish people, and He said, Share Him. It's at this moment when God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that we see the birth of what we call the people of God. Now, can I just say this to you? Because some people have this strange notion, this strange idea that we're all God's children. Well, okay, look, we're all God's children in the sense that he created us. That's what, that's what we believe here. But we're not God's children in the sense that we all trust him, we all believe him, we're all following him. What I'm talking about here are people who've actually made up their mind and have said, I want to follow God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. We call this love, love for God. We're loving God with our whole being. And those who love God with their whole being are called, in fact, the people of God. Now, God's the one who initiates this relationship. I want you to think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some of you may or may not know the stories of these great men, these men, the patriarchs, but I want you to know this today, that these men did not inherit their position. That might come as a, as a shock to some people. 
some people would say, well, you know, it, it would follow that, you know, Abraham's son is Isaac and Isaac's son is Jacob, and so therefore they would inherit this special position. But they didn't. Because you see, Isaac was not Abraham's firstborn son. Did you know that? Abraham's first son was Ishmael. But God did not want to bring his promise, his salvation, through Ishmael. He wanted to bring it through Isaac. And he said, well, what about Jacob? Well, Jacob was not Isaac's firstborn son. Esau was. And so here's what we recognize. We, see, we recognize that Isaac is a man of faith and that he inherits the promise of God because of his faith. Now, remember we said that faith is believe God and do what he says. That's what Isaac did. Same thing with Jacob. He believed God and did what he said. Now, you could say, oh, well, that sounds like they're, they must be pretty good guys. Well, no, they weren't. Actually, they were pretty bad guys, all of them. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all liars. That comes as a shock to you that the fathers of our faith were liars? Abraham lied. Remember Abraham wandering through the land with his beautiful, beautiful wife, and, and the, the king laid eyes on his wife and said, hmm, she looks hot. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. She looks hot. I think I'll take her to be my wife. And Abraham says, that's okay. That's my sister. And why does he say that? Because he's afraid that the king will say, how do I get this man's wife? Well, I know. I'll kill him. But Abraham's smarter than the king. It says, no, it's my sister. And, and if, you, if you read Genesis, you know that that king experienced nothing but heartache and pain and suffering in his household until one day God revealed to him that he had actually not Abraham's sister, but Abraham's wife. You'd think, after something like that, that the family would learn its lesson, but we'd get to Isaac, and he does exactly the same thing. Oh, it's not my wife, it's my sister. Worked for my dad, it'll work for me, right? He's a liar, too. Jacob, we get to Jacob. He's, he's no better morally. Now, remember, you and I do not win favor with God. You and I do not, are not embraced by God because we're perfect, because we're so good. Jacob actually lies to his father, Isaac, and says, do you remember the story? Jacob is ready, or Isaac is ready to pass the blessing on to his firstborn son, Esau, and says, Esau, go and get me some wild game. You know the stuff I love. And then cook it up for me and prepare it and bring it to me. And I'm going I'm to eat my face out, and I'm going to just... I'm going to just bless you. I'm going to pass the blessing on to you, the blessing that goes to the firstborn son. And you know the story. Isaac's mother hears this and runs to Jacob, who's her favorite, and says, Jacob, you got to get in there quick because dad's about to pass the blessing on. And once it's passed on, you'll never have a chance. So I'll help you. Let's deceive dad. Let's lie to him. Hope we don't have any mothers like that here. So Esau, or Jacob, gets some, he's, he, was a, he was kind of a bald guy, not like me, I'm a little bit hairy. Esau was hairy. And uh, Jacob knew that his dad would feel his arms and his face to see if it was really him. Couldn't see too well. Jacob really puts it on. He puts this, gets some hairy garment and gets the smell of outdoors, the wilderness. 
comes to his dad and Isaac's saying, I don't think this is, this is not Esau. I, this is not Esau. And Jacob's like, yes, it is. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> Jacob doesn't even prepare the food. His mother does it for him. Cheats his dad, lies to his dad. His dad gives Jacob the great blessing that God would bless him and prosper him. So a bunch of liars, cheats, thieves. <laughs> it's through these people that God decides to build his people, through these people. Now, here's what I want you to know today, because before you start getting uppity and clicking your tongue and saying, what kind of people? I'm going to tell you what kind of people. People just like you. Ouch. People just like you and me, normal people, people that make mistakes, people that sin, people that fall short. But listen, my friends, the thing that wins God's favor is that these men decide to put their faith in Almighty God. And at the end of the day, nothing changes from Genesis to Revelation. What brings salvation and the favor of God is not that you're perfect, but that you put your faith in God. Now, am I giving you license to go out and sin your head off? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm trying to say is this, is you cannot win God's favor. You cannot win God's salvation. You cannot win what God has to offer. It's only received by putting your faith in God. So God chose them because they were men of faith. They believed God and did what God said. It's interesting. When you look at at these men when they write up their will. Has everybody got a will here? Don't put your hand up. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. And Abraham, when he filled in his will and handed it off to his son Isaac, he says, and, and, I, and I give to you, I bequeath to you the promised land that, that God has promised. And Isaac says, well, what land is that? You don't own it yet. But we will, and when we do, you, you get it. So when my mom makes her will, I don't want her to make one like that. <laughs> and then Isaac does the same thing. And when you get the land, I give it all to Jacob. And Jacob's like, where is this land? Oh, we don't have it in yet. But we're, we, we will. And when we do, it's yours. So Abraham never gets the land. Isaac never gets the land. It gets to Jacob. And Jacob's got 12 sons. And he says... And to my 12 sons, I give the land. And the 12 sons are scratching their heads saying, uh, we're in Egypt right now, and in, actually slaves, uh, becoming slaves. No land yet. Every one of these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, believe God, that God will fulfill his plan. In fact, God does fulfill his, pl his plan. He does fulfill his promise. Because it's the sons of the 12 sons of, of Jacob that inherit the promised land. Do you remember the story of Charlton Heston wandering through the wilderness? A.K.A. Moses. <laughs> remember that? That's, those are descendants of the 12 sons of, of Isaac, or of, of Jacob. And they're going now into the promised land. They're inheriting the land that God promised. We call this a scandal of particularity. Why? Because God chose Abraham because Abraham believed God. 
Now, if you want the favor of God in your life, I don't know how many want the favor of God in your life. If you want the favor of God in your life, then you're going to have to believe him, believe God, and do what he says. Now, when God gave us commands, he gave us instructions and guidance on how to live this life. He didn't do it to make your life miserable. He did it to make your life wonderful, or as Jesus said, abundant. So we get to this Abrahamic, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And I want to read to you, first of all, the call of Abraham. And read it in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to, to 3. And it says this. The Lord had said to Abraham, or Abram at this time, because his name hasn't been changed, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, he's, he's in his mid-70s, folks. Anybody here in their mid-70s ready to sell everything you have, buy a few camels, and then wander up north? To Dauphin? <laughs> 75 years old. And his wife is scratching her head, thinking, he's really lost it this time. <laughs> no, she follows along. Abraham's dad says, you know what, go without me. <laughs> Send me a postcard. But I, I'm not going. Now, Abraham's nephew, Lot, says, well, I'll go. Sounds like a fun thing. It sounds like an exciting thing, going to Dauphin. <laughs> and away they go. It's wanderers. And this is what God says. Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. Hmm. I will make you into a great nation. There's six I wills here. Six things God's going to do. I will make you into a great nation. How many would say that God, in fact, has fulfilled his promise all these thousands of years later? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. How many know that that's the case? It will, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. What are we saying here, folks? We're saying that God wants to bless this world through the line of Abraham. This man of faith. When nobody else believed God, when nobody else trusted God, when Abraham had no evidence that God was going to keep his promises, I mean, God did not give him a title deed. He did not say, here's, your, here's the paper. That's, when you get there, show the officials at the border that you're taking over the land. He didn't do that. This is now my land, out. It didn't work like that. Can you just see Abraham knocking on the door with his young son, Lot, and his wife? I'm taking over the land. God says, I'm going to bless you. You just go. You don't know where you're going, but I'll show you. Trust me. And Abraham believed God and did what God said. And the Bible says that God attributed that, counted that as righteousness. Now, can I just remind everybody today that nothing has changed from Genesis to Revelation. When you believe God and do what he says, God accounts that to you as righteousness. It's not that you're so good. Listen. It's not that you're so good or such a good person, but that you've trusted God, that you put your faith in him and you're doing what he says. Nothing's changed. 
Now, obviously, at the time of Abraham, Jesus Christ is not born yet. But since then, Jesus Christ has been born. He is the Messiah. And God says this, that all who put their faith in his provision, in his son, Jesus Christ, they will be saved. You will become part of the family of God. You become a member of God's people. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you become part of God's people, is that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You enter into relationship with God. Now look what it says here in Genesis 17, 8. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you, to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So folks, listen to me. The very first thing that we recognize is that God has given Israel, the land of Israel, to Abraham and his offspring. He promised them that land surrounding Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, in case you don't know it, is the crossroads. It's the crossroads of the nations. It's, it's where Africa, the road to Africa meets Asia, and the road from Europe meets Arabia. It really, it's literally the crossroads of the world. There's a reason for this, folks, because here's what you need to understand. Israel was called by God to be the light to the world. The people through whom God's light, the truth of who God is, would reach the world. And it makes sense that it would be on the crossroads. Folks, the very first work of world missions is right here in Genesis. And that was the job of Israel, to be a light to the world. And it was through Abraham, listen to this, it was through Abraham's seed that the Messiah would come. you got to get this. Remember now, God says to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, that through you, the whole world will be blessed. What's he talking about? Let the, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart because it's sending chills down my spine right now. It's through his offspring. It's through Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, that the whole world would find salvation. The whole world, not just Israel, the whole world. And that's why when we get to the book of Revelation, we see over and over again the great prophecy that all the nations will gather around the throne of God in their various languages, praising God and bowing down to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Through Abraham, because Abraham believed God. I'm going to give you that land. By the way, these crossroads, a little place called Armageddon. We were traditionally taught that Armageddon is just, it's just in the north of Israel in a place called Megiddo. But all the scripture that I can find in my research says quite the opposite. It's not in the north. It's right there, Jerusalem. It's there in Jerusalem. The armies of the world at the end times are going to gather against God and his people. Do you get that? And if you're interested in knowing more, I'll send you all the scripture verses that, that help you understand that. All the nations of the world are going to rise up against God in the last days at a place called Armageddon, which is right there, right near Jerusalem, the crossroads of the nations. It makes sense. 
And all those who have not put their faith in God, all those who shake their puny fists in the face of God will rise up against God and say, we reject your rulership, we reject you, Yahweh. We reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says to Abraham, I'm giving you the land of Israel. It's, it's a promise forever. And so here's the thing. The next thing you need to know is that you will, this is what God says to Abraham, you will always have descendants on the earth. How many know that the Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat, declared, we will drive the Jewish people into the sea? Has anybody heard that? How many know that the Arab people, the Palestinian people, will never drive the Jewish people into the sea? How many know that today? Because God declares it. You will always have descendants on the earth. They're called God's people. And God's people stand as a standard against evil and against everything that is anti-God. And thirdly, God promises Abraham that he would use Israel to bless or curse everyone on the earth. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. I believe with all my heart that those nations, those leaders who support Israel will experience the blessing of God. Does this mean that we hate the Palestinians? Absolutely not. I told you a few weeks ago that some, I've got some very dear friends who are in fact Palestinian. How many understand that the war is not against the Palestinian people themselves, but against rogue jihadists, Hamas. You've seen it in the news. The world, it's in crisis right now over this. And I'll tell you what's, what's going on, folks. It's, there's a war going on in the heavenly places that you and I don't see or even understand. It's a war between light and dark, against good and evil, against Satan. Listen to this. This might sound extreme to some of you, but it's against, it's, it's against Satan who wants to wipe off the face of the earth God's people. Why? Why does Satan want to f- wipe God's people off the face of the earth? Because they're God's people. And remember what I said at the beginning, God is a God of love. And Satan knows that if he can strike a blow against God's people, he can strike a blow against God himself. This is why you and I need to understand the importance of our relationship with Almighty God. At the beginning of this movie, or at the beginning of the service, we saw Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac on an altar. Look what it says here in Genesis 22. It's not up here, but I'll read it to you. Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. It says, this is God speaking to Abraham. He says, take your son, Abraham, your only son whom you love, Isaac, And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Does this call to mind anything to you, folks? Any scripture verse in the New Testament comes to your mind? Take your son, your only son whom you love. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Anybody? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We see folks in this chapter, and I always wonder what that was all about. 
Why would God say to Abraham, sacrifice your son? It just seems ridiculous. It seems beastly, brutal. I'll tell you what it was. It was a prophetic act of obedience on the part of Abraham. So that someday, the people living in our age could look back over the centuries, over the millennia, and see that right from the beginning, God had a plan. Now watch this. This is amazing. There on Mount Moriah, Abraham called to sacrifice his only son, and at the last minute, God stopped the hand of Abraham. And Abraham noticed in the bush, there was a ram. And Abraham speaks these prophetic words and says, God will provide a ram. What he's looking forward to, day, to, to folks is the day when God would send his own son to die as a sacrifice for you and for me. Now watch this. Abraham called to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. Folks, it's the very place where Jesus Christ himself, where God our Father sacrificed his son in the same place because of his love for you and for me. This is always God's plan to redeem his people. It's always his plan to save his people from their sin. You know, when you become part of God's family, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of his family, and God says this, you will become my people, and I will become your God. I will be your God, you will be my people. Nothing's changed over the millennium. From Genesis to Revelation. Now, can I just say this in closing? There's two sides to every covenant. God said, I'm going to give you the land. Your descendants will always live on the earth. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That's God's covenant. What's Abraham's part in this covenant? Well, Abraham and his descendants were to be circumcised. And secondly, they were always to obey God. In the New Testament, we're called to have circumcised hearts. Hearts that are sensitive and open to the direction and the leading of God. Hearts that recognize that it's not my good works that save me, but it's my faith in God that saves me. This is the difference. Do you understand today that you have salvation, that you are saved because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ? And do you understand that to be a follower, to be part of God's people, to be part of God's family means that you always obey him? Look what, look what it says here in Revelation 21.7. And remember, this spans now the whole scripture. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. How are you going to be victorious, folks? There's only one way that you and I will ever be, live that victorious life, that life that pleases God. It's simply by following the example of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's believing God and doing what he says. You have got to read this book, people. 
and be in relationship with God and let God speak to you. And when God speaks to you, you do what he says. Not because you feel like it or because you want it, but because God says it. You believe him and you believe that whatever he tells you to do, he tells you for your good, for your own good, and for the glory of his name. James 2.23 says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Listen to this. And he was called God's friend. Do you understand today that God is calling us into relationship with him? God is calling you and me to walk with him, to enjoy him. This summer, for the first time in our the history of our family, the Duncalf family, we actually sat in our backyard. That's Jesse clapping over there. No, maybe not. I actually sat in the backyard with my son Jesse, sipping coffee and just talking. Never did that before. Too busy. Busy, 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 busy. I can tell you nothing brings greater joy to my heart than sitting with my children and talking and connecting, my heart connecting with his heart and his heart connecting with mine, sharing my thoughts, he's sharing his thoughts. Listen, this is what God wants to have with you and me. And this is the only kind of Christianity that makes sense. Christianity does not make sense if you don't have relationship with God, if all it is is smells and bells and whistles and, and genuflecting and crossing and all the rest. It's just formulaic. It may have meaning to some, but eventually it becomes, there's a danger of it becoming meaningless. What you need to have, folks, is a relationship with God. Abraham was called the friend of God. And why? Because God talked to Abraham and Abraham talked to God. Abraham believed God and did what God said. And folks, that's exactly what God's calling you and me to. To believe him and just do what he says. To enjoy that wonderful relationship with him. That he initiated by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to this world. When you and I put our faith in Christ, I can tell you this. You are saved. When you die, you're going to heaven. That's not a maybe. That's a for sure. When you get to the, to the gates of heaven, you can say to whoever's there, Something St. Peter. I think it'd probably be my grandma. You can say, Pastor Allen said, I get in based on. Based on my faith in Jesus Christ. And God said, your pastor was right. <laughs> We're coming to the fall in just a few weeks. And some have said there are, what, 16 weeks till Christmas? <laughs> Folks, listen, listen. It's so easy, it's so easy in the busyness of life, in the leisure of life, to forget God. But I'm here this morning to encourage you, to remind you to get reconnected and to stay connected to the Father in heaven who loves you. Would you stand with me, please?
Father, thank you so much for your word this morning that reminds us of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Men of faith, not perfect men, not men deserving your favor at all, but in their weakness, in their frailty, like us, they came believing you, God, and just doing what you say. And God, that is what brings joy to your heart. Father, we pray today that you give us the grace and the strength to live this life you've called us to, this life that says, God, I'm gonna believe you, I'm gonna do what you say. If there are any here today, God, who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have not yet said, Lord Jesus, I want to accept you as my savior, I wanna follow you. God, may this be the day when they trust you and trust your provision. You sent your son, Father, for us. We pray, God, that every one of us will put our faith in Jesus and for the rest of us, God, who have already established that relationship with you, you've established it with us, give us the grace and the strength to live the way you've called us to live, knowing, Father, that there is great blessing for everyone who believes you and does what you say. Thank you, Father, for this personal relationship we have with you. And God, it's just amazing to us that you would define yourself by calling us your Father. Don't get that. Just so awesome, so amazing. You define yourself, God, as the father of Alan Duncalf. I, I just am so in awe of your love. Thank you, Father. And God, we commit ourselves to you now, asking for grace to trust you and to do your will. And everybody said it? Amen. Amen. Tell the person beside you, go walk with Jesus.